Hello, everybody. Welcome to Winning at Work. I am your host, Tony Moore, and today I have Eileen Rarehigh. She is the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Trading at Sukafina. I'm really pleased to have her here today. I think you're one of my first Ivy Leaguers, Eileen. I I don't know. Well, maybe I've had some others, but uh, University of, of, of Pennsylvania. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're we're really pleased for you to be here as well, because in the world of business, in the world of sales, we're always up against the status quo. We're always up against, here's how business has always been done before. When you and I talked a little bit ahead of time, you had some really interesting you know, ideas about how to compete. And it kind of, we both kind of agree this is a, a fantastic topic, and I really am looking forward to kind of getting into this and kind of hearing how you're doing that within your company and your philosophy. And I think everyone in sales and marketing, I think this story or these ideas will resonate with everyone. But before we really launch into that, um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about Sukafina, what your uh, your company, your brand, your your mission. And let's, let's start with that so people can have a little more exposure to, to your company. Absolutely. Um, I actually started in coffee almost by chance. And I feel that I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to get the opportunity to work um, in the green coffee field and in this commodity. Sukafina has an amazing story. The family behind Sukafina were Palestinians um, that, and they were merchants in, in, in Lebanon. Um, so they left Palestine, went to Lebanon, were merchants there, and then moved to Switzerland, where they started to Kafina in the mid-1900s. I, I don't remember exactly the date. And they did sugar trading, coffee trading, and financial services. And over time, they realized that the coffee trading was really their 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 main market. And so now they only focus on coffee. Because of their geographical location, they went into a lot of the African countries, building out a lot of infrastructure, uh, putting a lot of money into the economies there, sustainability, and working with coffee farmers to improve their crops and sell them around the world. About five or six years ago, they decided to formally come into the United States and grow their business here. Um, In doing so, they hired out a team, and they hired me last year uh, to continue that growth in North America. That's really exciting when you're literally part of a greenfield operation. You don't have to, you know, have the, the luggage and the burden of, well, here's how we've done things in the past, right? You get to create. Yeah, actually, that's one of the exciting things about being in this role right now at Tukafina. You have the support of a company that's been around for a really long time, but we work almost entrepreneurially independently as a new company building out um, the North American market. And so we have a lot of free will in, in a way and a lot of autonomy in deciding this is the market that we want to pursue. This is the strategy that we want to pursue. These are the clients that we want to speak to. And um, the manager of North America actually had an amazing strategy. And what he did is he chose the best salespeople at competitor firms. And so... We, instead of building out a team of a lot of people that you're going to train, he had what I call, um, he went out there and found the best people and really focused on performance management. Everything had to be the best, hire the best people instead of 
hire okay people and train. And then after you do that, the team can build itself up and you can grow that way. And I think a lot of companies these days, they focus so much more on maybe costs or training from the ground up rather than um, focusing out there and getting the best quality people and everything should, should fall into place. Or they focus a lot on process rather than people. Um, our company is very big on focusing on people first and process second. I really like that idea, though. I've heard this before from other uh, beverage companies, too, that it's a, it's a very complicated space, and coffee supply chain is, is no different. So, you know, trying to have someone learn the supply chain, coffee, the roasters, the whole value chain, and then you're trying to train them in sales and techniques. I mean, you're sinking a lot of money and a long, you know, ramp-up cycle. And, you know, when I look at your background, you know, you – you've been in this industry. So you just kind of inherently know a lot of these things. So I think, I think that's actually a wise strategy, particularly opening a new market. You hire your, just hire experts. Right. <clears throat> now maybe, you know, maybe on the road, right. When you have a, maybe a little more mature market, you can, ha you have the time, you can bring more people in and kind of train them up, maybe a cheaper option at, in the future. Right. Absolutely. And coffee, as I imagine, like almost any industry, there's a lot of um, very small things that can go wrong very quickly. And I think that a strategy of having deep um, knowledge of the subject and of the supply chain has been really helpful, especially in a year like this. And I imagine with some of the other um, guests that you've had on your show, you've maybe pondered or, or spoken about this the global supply chain and the logistical challenges that we've been facing as a result of COVID and of demand shifts around the world, it has been an absolute nightmare over the last year to get any container at a reasonable price anywhere in the world. <laughs> um, and with those challenges, having good expertise and people that know what they're doing um, from the logistical perspective, also from the sales perspective has been uh, very very rewarding. And at least for us, it's been, um, a good year as a result of having uh, great people. So you've been in the, uh, the, in the U S market now, what, this is your, what second year into the U S market or the first year? Actually. So the company itself has been here for about five years in, in the U S market. Um, but last year they realized that they needed to continue to grow with the people that they had. They just needed to hire more traders. They were I'm growing too quickly and we're being overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, coffee is a massive, massive space and it lends itself to that food forward type of, you know, creative uh, barista. There's all different, you know, trends that are happening. So I, I imagine it's, it's very tough to keep up with supply and trending and making sure you're giving the right, you know, beans and flavor profiles to all the new, you know, demands that are out there. What, um, for those people who just don't know a lot about the, the coffee space, are there any kind of unique trends that are happening right now in, in your niche, particularly here in, the, in America? I would say that, you know, coffee in general is very emotional. I can't think of any other uh, food item that we consume as a country here in North America that has a more emotional attachment. You go to any store and you see coffee mugs all the time that say first coffee. There's every meme in the world about coffee. There's 
you know, uh, it's, it's very cultural about drinking coffee to stay awake or for energy and, and so on and so forth. So coffee is a very emotional food that we eat and consume on a daily basis. Um, but behind that, there's an incredible story of sourcing that coffee and that's sustainability and who grows our coffee and that, that value, that supply chain and that value chain is very important. So over the past few years, one of the biggest things that we've noticed is that our consumers are paying a little bit more attention to what they're buying. So maybe 25 years ago, the, tr the new trend was like, oh, organic was becoming something important. Now it's also where does my food come from? The whole farm to table movement that we've seen in the last um, five to 10 years, it's also coming into coffee. So who grows my coffee? Where do they grow it? Are they using sustainable practices? Are the farmers getting paid a good wage? And so there's a lot of work that we're doing at origin. Um, and when I say at origin, I mean at the farm level with farmers in order to help them create a sustainable future for themselves and their families. Um, so that's a big trend that's happening in coffee, but not necessarily in the actual drink that we drink um, every day. And then on the flip side, on the actual consuming coffee that, you, that you're probably drinking right now and that I just drank this morning, there's a couple of things. One, um, K-cups, uh, they revolutionized coffee about eight years ago because people weren't used to just putting in a pod and pressing a button and drinking coffee. So that revolutionized um, coffee in a way that um, very few things have. So that was a big change and we're still living through that, although that's old news at this point. But over the last year, especially during COVID, what we saw is that people that were no longer going out to their local coffee shop, they came back into the house and they started experimenting with coffee. So we actually did see a few trends happen last year on um, consumers producing coffee and I'm sorry, not producing coffee, drinking coffee and making their own coffees at home. The younger generations were not used to, did not, did not even know how to make coffee at home. They were buying coffee out of the home. And now that's become a much more um, hands-on experience inside the home. And I think it's been interesting because what we saw as a, um, as a coffee company, as an importer, is that the trend last year during COVID was that people started drinking better coffee. So they actually started consuming better quality coffees because when they were going to the supermarket or when they were shopping um, through apps, they were actually paying a little bit more attention to the quality that they were drinking. They wanted to get that out-of-home experience, that coffee shop experience inside their home, and so they started buying better quality beans. Yeah, it's like they took themselves through a premiumization of Correct. what they were consuming. And, you know, honestly, it's fun to make coffee. I have an espresso machine, and it's it's fun to experiment, you know, with how much you grind it, the, the granularity, and how much, you know, milk and the different ways. I mean, I'm no expert or anything, but it, it's, it's kind of fun. And, I mean, I'm the one who likes to cook anyway. So, to me, that's just yeah. another, you know, another way to be, uh, you know, expressive or kind of creative. And, yeah. you know, I've got to – I've said this before, you know, I've got a 21 year old and I'm constantly looking for new ways to, to teach her, you know, how to cook, how to prepare things, because eventually, you know, you have to launch them. They have to be able to do these things on their own. And this is just another one of those, you know, ways that they can make it them, you know, make it for them and it, they feel good about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, 
I think again, like, like I said, um, coffee is an emotional product. It's something that elicits emotions from people. So over the last year, as people were home, they were making their own coffees that really created much more of an attachment between people and their coffee and their drink. No other beverage has the same sort of emotional attachment. I mean, maybe alcohol, but that's for different reasons, but, um, but, you know, you go into the refrigerator and you just pour yourself a glass of whatever. You don't really um, think about it twice. I think coffee goes a step beyond that. Yeah, there must be something about it because you drink it first thing in the morning. It's the first thing that kind of hits your taste buds. You're right. You know, you don't see memes and all kinds of coffee mugs for, for water. Yeah, you know? or, or for, you know, OJ or, or you know, you know, soda. Not. Yeah, no, you're right. No, you're right. I had not thought about it being an emotional thing. So, so in your role in uh, in marketing and opening up the American market and really ramping it up to where you know your vision is, you know, you're probably running into right. Here's how business used to be done, or here's how it it has been done, and then hey, I'm running into obstacles. I've got to find new ways, and that. I think kind of leads us into our, our main discussion about, you know, how do you break the status quo? And I'd kind of love to hear your, you know, your, your kind of your, your opening salvo on kind of why you started thinking this way and kind of share with us, you know, how we can kind of go through a mindset shift ourselves, you know, in our own businesses. On breaking the status quo, it's interesting that you brought up that point, um, Tony. I want to discuss a, a quick story. You know, one of the things that you and I discussed prior to this, to the podcast was that in large businesses, you get a lot of training that comes to you. And in small businesses, you kind of have to find that training yourself and you really become sort of like um, the author of your own career because nobody is handholding you and, and teaching you like, this is the way that you should um, do leadership. This is the way that you should sell. This is the way that... Um, you need to um, work in operations. Um, I came across the story of Robert Scott and Roald Amundsen. I'm not exactly sure I'm pronouncing that right, but no, it's, I think you nailed it. No, I, 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 I think you it? nailed it. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. yeah. I, I Amundsen, rarely yeah, nail Amundsen. anything, so I'm glad. Um, I, go ahead. <laughs> no, I think it's great. That's great. I could, you know, I could barely pronounce your last name. You're you're way ahead of me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, you know, it, it was, um, I actually participated in a, um, in a, um, a, a Harvard business school class on the dimensions of leadership. And we talked about the story of Robert Scott and, and Amundsen going into the South pole and who could reach the South pole first. And it was interesting because they both took very different approaches. So Robert Scott was, part of like the UK Royal, um, Royal Navy, I want to call it, or the Royal Guard. So basically part of the uh, UK military and Amundsen was an explorer, uh, two very different people. If you see their pictures, you would, you would know that they are from completely different backgrounds and they both had different strategies. Robert Scott had five methods for getting into the South Pole. So he was hedging his bet. He basically took he took, um, what are they, the dogs, um, horses, yes. and, yeah. and a few other things like scientists, sleds, and some sort of like, 
um, cart that would take him to the South Pole. And yeah, machinery. I mean, I think machinery. I remember reading that. Yeah, they actually thought they could bring like mechanized yeah. machinery. This is like what back in what night. Like early 1900s, right? Yeah. Like the 1910, 11, somewhere back then? Yeah, it was like some sort of like car or cart or something like that. So he decided, I'm going to go to the South Pole and I am, and my strategy is I'm going to bring everything, use all the resources of the United Kingdom, and I'm going to have everything. I'm going to do, I'm going to put out a, new, a newspaper article. I'm, I'm going to select 65 people for my team. He had 8,000 applicants and I'm going to be very flexible. We're going to use the best method of the time. And that's how we're going to get to the South Pole. And we're going to get there before Rold, Rold Amundsen. I'm going to start calling him Rold. Rold, on the other set, on the other hand, said, I'm going to have one method. I'm going to have dogs. And then for the people, I can't afford too many people. What I can afford is to bring the best people. So he actually, instead of putting out a newspaper article where he got 8,000 applicants, he said, who is the world's best skier? He interviewed him and convinced him. He said, who is the best chef that I can find that feeds large number, numbers of people? He got that guy because the chef is one of the most important people that you need in, a, in an expedition like this. And he went down the list and got the best people. And he focused on what they called fanatic expertise. Everyone had to be the best and had the deepest expertise in the most critical jobs. And those are the two people that the, – that's how they kind of created um, those things. So whereas Scott was broad hedging and had sort of like a complex structure because he had machines, skis, you know, uh, dogs, uh, horses, and, and and so on. I mean, he had a, a huge, 65 people. Um, Rold was a little bit more focused and had all his eggs in one basket. If the dogs didn't work – he was in, you know, the dogs with the sleds didn't work. He, he was done. And so they both um, went to the South Pole and had different challenges and so on. And in the end, Roald Amundsen got to the South Pole first. And Robert Scott did not. And his team suffered a lot of setbacks and a lot of deaths. And part of the, the teaching of how they both um, executed their strategies is that Scott was not focused. He lost his focus because he had too many things that he had to focus on. Did the dogs get fed? Did the horses get fed? Did, was the machine running correctly? Is it breaking down? He had 65 people to manage and he could not focus on the end result. The end result was what? Get to the South Pole first. Instead, he was focusing on how do I manage my horses so that they don't die? Do I go back and you know, and, and go back for the people that are left behind. So I think one of the things that has helped us and me in my business on breaking the status quo is having focus, not trying to be all things to all people, but really executing on the things that we do best and the expertise that we bring to the table. Yeah. I'm, I wish this was videoed because I've got this kind of enlightened feeling, this look of, you know, it, it just makes so much sense. I and I, we had discussed. You, you had mentioned this trip to the South Pole to us before, and I had heard about it. I had not done a lot of research on it, but uh, in preparation for today, you know, I looked into it a little bit more, and it, it was fascinating. You, you had one 
one man, you had Robert Scott bringing literally the village with him. Mm -hmm. And I think at one point they were maybe making five miles a day. Mm -hmm. And then you had this really fast moving lean group. They would cover 20 miles a day. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it really forces me, and I think it's going to force other people to think, okay, how can I move the needle today? And I, I'm curious, so within your team, within your executive leadership team, can you tell us a little bit, how do you take that practice of what we've learned about Scott and Amundsen and apply it to your business? Do you all sit down and have, like, how often do you have strategy sessions to really clarify the goal, and then work on cutting out the, all the other noise. How does that process happen? Absolutely. So we we focus on strategy. Um, we have monthly strategy meetings, but even before that, the idea and and part of the reason why I mentioned that story is because eighty percent of reorganizations have nothing to do with strategy. They're all about people. And so in our business, what we decided to do is that there's some jobs that are critical, there's some jobs that are important, and then there's some jobs that are less important. On the critical jobs, that's where you want to have your best people. That's where you're going to make your competitive advantage. And so our goal is to figure out who, where are the critical jobs, which are the critical jobs within our business, and do we have stars in them? And if we don't have stars in them, what can we do to get those stars? And so I think a lot of what you see right now, especially with like bigger firms, firms that are not so nimble and maybe firms that are a little bit more, um, that have been around for a, a, a longer time is that you have a more balanced leadership. You have a lot of hedging, um, or you have lax leadership where you have many vague goals, ad hoc strategies, um, and undisciplined execution because there's lack of accountability, with a smaller, more nimble team like the one that, that, that we have here, um, or at least in my company right now, it's almost all or nothing. It's kind of extreme leadership, best expertise, and a fanatic discipline on executing strategy. And so what that means is that even though we have this strategy meeting once a month, and it's not a, even a very long, it's just to make sure that we're still honed in on our strategy, that it still makes sense that the risks and the weaknesses that we've identified before are either being handled or that they continue to be there, but we can continue to overcome them. Does that make sense? It, it does. I, I want to ask your advice because I think there's going to be other maybe smaller companies and leaders that they, this is resonating 100%. They want to do it, but they don't have anyone to turn to maybe within the organization, as you said, maybe, maybe they are the expert, right? And they've been hired by someone who's not an expert. So who are you going to kind of pull together to create this strategy? If you don't want to be working in a vacuum, what, what advice would you have for someone in that situation where they're the VP, but the CEO maybe, maybe lacks the expertise in their space that they've been brought into if, if that exists. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult and it's something that I've encountered in my career as well is that how do you influence management up when you're in a, in a position where you want some change to happen and perhaps you're seeing that lax leadership happening. How do you do, how do you influence that individual um, while still being in good graces <laughs> um, and being able to execute your strategy? 
I'm not 100% sure I know the answer to that. But I, what I can tell you, I don't know if, if you've read the book about Netflix and how they started. And at some point, they were growing so fast that they started instituting all these processes. And they had a, a point in time where they had to either fire people or reduce everyone's salary. And they decided to lay off about 20% of their, their staff. And what they found out when they laid off the 20% of their staff is that their productivity actually went up and they became a better, leaner, more successful organization. So I think that even for smaller, so I'm going to take your question in, in two ways. I think for small companies, because you can say like, look, I'm a small company. I don't have the budget to hire stars in every one of these positions. What can I do? And I think that for those smaller companies that you have some resource constraints and, and, um, I don't think stars are necessarily people that already have the skills. Um, I think stars are people that have the personality perhaps um, that, or, or maybe they don't have the business knowledge, but they do have the skill set that you're going to need for that role. So for example, you would not hire a person that does not know how to sell or that is not comfortable around other people into a sales job because they just won't be comfortable around other people forever. And so I think you can still sort of mold people that already um, have that star quality. I can give you an example. I had this, um, this lady that I hired in my previous job. And from the moment she came into the interview, I knew that I was going to hire her. And she was amazing. Six months into the job, she asked for a raise. and I fully thought she deserved it. Um, the, she is... The, the person, she, she was two years out of college, but you could tell that she had the ambition, that she had the skill set, that she had the, um, she wanted it. You know what I mean? She yeah. wanted to grow. She wanted to learn. She was there every single day asking, what else can I do? How can I do it better? How can I grow in this role? And she was amazing. Um, ultimately, she left for a another company. Realized after I had trained her for a while that she was an amazing and a star, and she left for um, you know better pastures. And we still maintain in touch. But you can recognize stars without necessarily breaking the bank. And I think that that's something that people need to recognize. It's not just when you're the best. It, it's not just the best because you have deep knowledge, but it could also be the best because you have the right skill set for that job. And did you're your organization employee? Yes. Did your organization improve because she was there, even though it was a short period of time? Absolutely. I think people, I think hiring leaders will oftentimes not hire someone because they they know they're going to leave and they're going to have spent, you know, put a lot of time and energy and effort into them. But yet, you don't know that for sure, and your organization did improve, and. That's, you know, another philosophy, you know, hire the, hire the absolute best you can and don't worry, you know, if they do leave. If, if you get good productivity out of freedom for two years, two and a half years, I mean, you have to take it. And then maybe your organization does change. Maybe your organization is able to offer them the growth that they need. But if not, you know, you get that bump while they're yes. there. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, and then the other, the other thing that I wanted to mention is how do you – how do you manage up? And that one is, is really tricky and something that I'm still learning in my own career. 
I think it's really comes down to personality and, and, and knowing what the personality of the, of, of the people that you work with is. You, you've really touched on a real problem, a real challenge, because we hear these great ideas, you know, break the status quo. We need to have these strategies in place. And yet you take this idea in and if you're senior leader, you, you need that senior leadership to work with you to help create that strategy, to help um, create that buy-in, you're right, to the new vision that maybe you want to to embark upon. And I think the answer is, you know, if you approach your managers, you approach your, I shouldn't say manager, you, you approach the CEO or the SVP and you want to talk about strategy, you want to talk about a new approach to a market, if they're closed, if they don't open up and they don't show that servant leadership mentality, I think you've just taught yourself an awful lot about your executive leadership team that they're probably not going to be there for you. And frankly, you should perhaps start looking for another job. Now, I know looking for another job is very difficult these days because so much is going on in the world, but that's my take on it. I think you, you to your point, it's a little political. I think you try to sort it out, but if you don't get that openness, that willingness, if you don't see that that servant leadership where they come down and they kind of, you know, metaphorically put their arm around you and, and walk that walk with you and try to help you with those, those big challenges you're trying to overcome, then you're probably not working for the right people. Right. I mean, I think also the way that I've approached it in my life is that, and I say this to my husband all the time, is that every person is my client. That's it. Every person is my client. My boss is also my client. So as a salesperson, when I frame things in that in that context, then the way that I approach the person changes completely. And I, I don't know, and, and probably for people that are not salespeople, this absolutely makes no sense because they say, oh, I treat everyone the same way. But when I'm approaching a client, a buyer, especially a hesitant buyer, my approach to them is a lot, it's, it's different than when I'm approaching, you know, my son that just broke a vase. But if I think of my son that just broke a vase as my client, then I try to be a lot more empathetic on why he broke it <laughs> and, and, and so on. And so when I, when I see bad leadership and, and, and I've been lucky enough um, that it's been pretty rare, um, but when I see someone that or, or something that, I, that I'm not um, comfortable with or that I think needs to change a little bit, if I put myself in the context of this person is my is my client, then my approach is a little bit different. And it's difficult for me to explain how different it would be, but it's more of a consultation rather than I think this is wrong, but more so like I would like to talk about this this topic and, and see their perspective because a lot of times it's all about perspective. I may, I may disagree with the decision because I don't know that the context behind it um, what the context behind it is or what the reasoning is behind it. And there might be a very logical reasoning. I think we've just transitioned into an area that I, I want you to discuss to, to kind of discuss just for a minute. Is this maybe a superpower, maybe a, a skill or a trait that you use? Um, of course the podcast is called winning at work. So, you know, what super superpowers do you use to win at work? But I think the way you're approaching people you know, in this manner, the way you're using relationships to accomplish things, maybe that's part of your 
your kind of your, your, your secret sauce. Have you given any thought to this superpower? I think I mentioned to you that the only power I thought I had was that um, I am an honest salesperson, which uh, it seems like people don't usually associate salespeople with honesty. And I mentioned to you that the reason I'm honest is not because I'm necessarily this virtuous person that is the most honest person in the whole world, but mostly because <laughs> I can't remember a lie. Um, you know, in two months, if I say to you today, like the sky is red, I'm going to forget about it in two weeks. And then I'm going to say the sky is blue. And now I've just ruined my credibility. So, um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I think one of my superpowers is that I'm pretty honest and pretty direct with my clients, especially because it's, it's much easier for me to be clear and know that we're both in the same, on the same page. Um, than not, and then, or then trying to lie and then not remembering that line, trying to cover that up. And now I've lost all credibility in the future with that client. Um, the strategy isn't, doesn't always work because sometimes honesty and directness could be, um, can be negative, especially depending on the culture. Luckily in the American culture, I am able to be honest and direct, but this wouldn't work so well in, in other less direct cultures that maybe value less honesty because they want to save face. Right. Well, yeah, if you're dealing with people who are used to spinning little stories and such, then you're exposing and you're, you know, you're, you're not fitting in. Well, in servant leadership, there is a moment where you do come across a situation and it needs a, a MOT, an MOT, a moment of truth. And it sounds like that's kind of what you live by is, Say it, you say it, you call it like it is. But I do think you are, I do think you probably do a, a good job working relationships, not maybe intentionally, but that's just, I think perhaps your, your style, you know, you do communicate well, you are very honest, but at the same time, if you're treating everybody like a customer, then you definitely have a, a way of keeping things smooth, keeping things running and, you know, keeping that harmony. And I think, I think. That's my perception. I think maybe that's how you do accomplish some things. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine that you've come across this many times in, in your interviews with people is that typically your superpower or your best skill is difficult for them to sort of name it because it's so natural that you don't think yes. of it as a skill. Yes. You're the first person who's actually said that. It's because somebody told me that when I was telling them, I don't know what I did this like personality or skills test. And I was going back with, it was a career coach. I was going back with them and I said, but doesn't everybody feel this way? And they said, no, that's because it's natural to you. It's easy for you. And now oh I know. Oh my gosh. It. Yes. I went, I had the biggest struggle when I work with a purpose coach and she's wonderful. And I'm going to, I don't think I've mentioned her name before. Precious Mansapelli. She is, she's fantastic. She's a rock star, superstar. She's the kind of person you would always want on your team. She's just a bright shining light. And I met her when I worked at Cox Enterprises. I actually um, helped her, you know, I was in the executive search team and I helped her get a job over there and we've stayed in touch and she's also a purpose coach. And she said, you know, I really only coach women. She said, but I, I I'm looking for a Guinea pig. You know, I would like to <laughs> work with a man. So, um, and I went through this whole process with her and I literally think she was, she was really patient with me because I was totally blind, totally 
I could not figure this thing out. And that's why it made such an impression with me that I've, I've wanted to talk about it a little bit on the podcast with other people too. You know what that superpower is. It's so natural. You don't even realize you're doing it, but yet other people need to see what it is because you need to try to, you know, use it for yourself when you can. Yeah. How, how do you help other people get sort of understand what that superpower is and maybe they can, they can use that as a tip next time that they're in a situation that will call for that. Yes. Yeah. You say that. Yeah. You've really framed it up, you know, quite well. And I, and I appreciate that. So that is, that's great. Did, did you ever take the Clifton skills assessment? Did you ever take that one? You know, I think I did. I think I did. I've taken all of them. Um, I know what my Enneagram is. I've taken the Myers-Briggs. I think I took the Clifton. I took one that now they're giving to all kids in college um, that tell you, like, this is what you should do. I should be an interior designer, for example. Or this is, <laughs> this is um, and, and these are your, um, your skills. But if you remind me of it, then I'll probably remember a little bit more about what the outcome was. Well, they, I think there's like 29 uh, skills that everyone has, but you have five that really show up really strongly. So for me, my first one is an activator. My second one is ideation. But you've got, there are other ones that have, you know, focus. Um, oh gosh, I wasn't prepared and I don't have all 29 in front of me. I just can't rattle them off, but. But I mean, for you, I mean, it could be communication, could be, you know, relationships. So you, everyone's probably tired of hearing me say it on the podcast, but I do recommend you take it because that's the one that I went through. That's the one that was most helpful. And it really opened things up for me to see myself. And now when I'm in a situation where things aren't going the way they should, now I know this is what I need to do. These are my skills that I can 100% use in this situation. So I have started telling all my clients and all my prospects that I am all about taking action and I'm a brainstormer and I'm the kind of person you want in the room to brainstorm. And I'm also in a nonprofit and the nonprofit that I do a lot of work in where there's a lot of things that we're trying to fix and create and do in Georgia. And that's like the big role I play is just helping getting ideas up and running. So and that Clifton, that Clifton test brought it out so I could see it. So now that I know it, I can, you know, really apply it. You know, you bring up a good point. And I think one of the things that we discussed before this podcast was, was exactly what I mentioned. Um, what can you do say to people that has helped you win at work and going on that Clifton, going a little bit beyond that, I think true self-awareness has been the biggest and most important thing in my life. So um, we are blinded, like I said, to the things that are our strengths, but we're also blinded a little bit to our weaknesses. And so, for example, if you take an Enneagram test and you find out, so an Enneagram is basically the nine basic personalities, and within that there's sub-personalities. But taking a basic Enneagram test is actually really helpful because it helps you understand how you react to stress. Um, when I took my Enneagram, I was not exactly happy with, with my, my personality number that came out, but it made sense because I am a type of person that my team 
it's, it's ride or die. So I'm going to go with my team everywhere and I'm not going to leave a person behind. So when I see something, when I see a leader or when I see a situation where someone is being left behind, I get very uncomfortable, but now I, and, and I might, um, I might become aggressive or I might try to stop the situation, but now I know that it's because my personality, I, myself, I react that way. Somebody else, because they're a different personality, that's not what's important to them. Something else is more important to them. And so I think that self-awareness might be the superpower that you've been asking a little bit about, um, having self-awareness of knowing that this is the way that I react. And so I am in a moment of stress right now. I'm going to remove myself from this moment of stress because I know that this is what's important to me, but somebody else is acting and reacting a little bit differently because that they're not even aware that they're leaving that person behind. For example, I'm just giving you an example here. They're not even aware because that's not the things that they look at. Those are not the things that are important to them. Um, When I, I worked with a career coach, in the past, the one that I mentioned before, and I took a, uh, a basic 360 test and then we had it and we sent it out to um, a bunch of colleagues and they came back and the, on the day of, you know, the moment of truth, when we're looking at the, the 360 and where my strengths are, where my weaknesses are, he says to me, Eileen, in my 26 year career, I have never had a person that has literally scored themselves exactly the same as everybody else in the 360. So my scores, the way that I scored myself on the positive and on the negative was right on the dot with where my colleagues scored me. And I think that maybe that's my strength um, or my superpower or whatever it is, is that I am highly self-aware. And I think that that's one of those helpful things. This has been just a fantastic discussion with you. We, I, You and I did not plan this. No. Well, we plan to discuss, to, to speak today, <laughs> but we did not plan to well, <laughs> go into the tangent on personality tests and what your strengths and your weaknesses are in the context of your career. No. Yeah, that this has been extremely helpful. And I think you've really already touched a little bit on, you know, how can you help a hiring leader? I think you've really answered that question. I Frankly, I love the way you've broken down you know, is the role critical? Is it important? Is it not as important? And put your superstars where it's most critical. I think that is my big takeaway. And I would say the big takeaway for the hiring leaders who are out there, that's what you want to focus on when you're hiring, because I think, um, I think you nailed it when, when you said that. Absolutely. Well, this has just been for me, very eye opening. I love this juxtaposition between Robert Scott and Roald Amundsen and then all these other kind of tangents we went on. I think it's been a well-rounded conversation. Before we go, this is a good opportunity for you. If if you're looking for a superstar, anyone that's listening right now and they're thinking, you're the kind of person they want to work for. This is the kind of organization I want to be a part of. Is there anything particular your company's looking for? Maybe someone hears this and they want to connect with you? I think we are always looking for the best people in their field um, from an operational, operationally, um, managerial, sales, IT, anything like that that could help our business grow and move forward is something that we would consider we would love to speak to. Um, one of the critical things in our company is innovation. 
So we also want people that are entrepreneurial and are innovative. And if you have a good idea, we'll run with it. And that's one of the things that attracted me to this company because it's still young, it's nimble, it's growing, it's very entrepreneurial. And so you, you have the opportunity to do things within a company and innovate within a company. And they will say yes, because the company is, is very open to ideas. I think also that's one of the reasons why I came here um, was because of that embracing and that openness. And like you said, Tony, before, if you're in a company where you're met with resistance when you're trying to influence up or manage up, then perhaps that's not the right, that's not the right place. Particularly if you are trying to break out of the status quo, which brings our whole topic, I think, to a perfect close. Eileen, this has been very eye-opening. Love meeting you. We all love coffee. I think we all have learned a lot more about uh, Sukafina and what you guys are trying to accomplish here in, 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 in America. We certainly wish you wish all all the best opening up your, your new markets for all those growers around the world and adding that value back down to the farmer as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks so much. Take care.